Hey, hey, welcome back to We Let the Dogs Out. Yes, right, chat, right, and cool people doing awesome things. Today, you'll hear from Gadalan, and who he was the director of my Hamidi College program. You'll hear him talking a little bit about his journey from Israel military forces to Columbia PhD to working on the T director, management evolving or lack of it, chat GPT in his classroom, just going out there and doing things along with hobbies. Hope you enjoy. For the listeners who don't know you, you want to just share a little bit about your journey to today and where you see your role in having team going in the future. Yes, yeah, so a little bit about myself. So I'm currently the director of the management technology program at the Penn Wharton Engineering, originally from Israel, background in tech, PhD, studied in Israel, PhD at Columbia in decision risk and operations, which was game theory and queuing theory. The last then 11 years at the Kellogg School and now for the last seven years at the Wharton School in this role. I can talk more about many things. I work with firms in different stages, a lot about scaling, how to scale, but I also do research with firms primarily on in the area of the gig economy and supply chain. I'm happy to get into any specific area. Incredible. And I don't know how much you can talk about, but I think your experience with Israel military is fascinating as well. What kind of role did that play in your life? How do you reflect on that now? Yeah, so I was in a what they call a reconnaissance patrol unit, which basically means that we are, it's a, a an elite unit, special forces, whatever you want to call that, a, that's supposed to be a head of the a unit a, on the side. A, so most of our training is really about being in very small groups and orienteering and navigating and camouflaging and things like that. I was a soldier, then company, platoon commander, then a company commander. And both it really played two roles, I would say, in my overall experience. The first one is you learn, and I know it may sound very cliche, but you learn that everything is mental. Everything, very few things are physical. You go through weeks where... Uh, you barely sleep, you eat very little, uh, everything seems to be against you, uh, but you, you learn to continue and cope. You learn that you really don't choose the situation you're in, but you have to perform in the situation that you're put into. And so a uh, learning that served me well in, in the rest of my life. The second thing that the military allowed me is to experiment a little bit with, le- with leadership. Uh, and one of my main conclusions from my military experience, at least from being an officer, was that I really didn't like it. I, I don't like managing people per se. I don't like the notion of uh, disciplining other people. It's not, I don't know how to do that. I, I can do it pretty well, but I don't really like managing people that are not necessarily aligned with me in my value system. Uh, and that's often in many ways what brought me to do my PhD was that I said like this trajectory, for example, right? one can say after doing managing, let's say, 100 soldiers or whatever, the next phase will be maybe going into more of like management. One of my main conclusions that I prefer getting into the more, uh, let's say, knowledge-based world. And so I did my PhD and and, and since then I've done things in leadership, being an M&T here, I was a founder, but in many ways, all of them were in a world that was much more a knowledge-based or I could choose the people around me in many ways, or at least believe to believe that we share the same value system. Fascinating. So I'm actually in Sao Paulo right now for six months of my reputation and ran into Enzo, who I beat within your class recently, and he said that you are still filming it in the Wharton 5K. So I'm sure your fitness is still very much there. 
<laughs> yes, I, I managed somehow to keep my fitness from these days. Not the same <laughs> level, but close. Yes. Incredible. So maybe more on management, how do you see the world of management evolving as it becomes more remote and global? How do you think software and remote tools help to make that easier or harder? Easier and harder at the same time. Like I'll, I'll start from a place where we speak now using a system that I have here in my office. I have a very good microphone here, a large condenser microphone. I have a system here that has a preamplifier. And all of that started because when I taught right after COVID, one of my students said, you have a great video, I have a very good camera with very good autofocus and everything. But when you speak, there is a little bit of reverb. So I said, you know, that's interesting. Of course, sit in a room with windows. I prefer to keep these windows in the room. Uh, so let me go in and find a way. And then I, I, to eliminate that, I find this notion that you can actually get a preamplifier that has a gating function, all of that. Uh, anyway, long story short, I realized I don't really know what to do with that. And fine tuning it is very hard. I went to Upwork and find an Upwork. They posted this question. I said, I have this preamplifier, I have this microphone, I have this converter and everything. Can you help me? Anyone help me? Then, then I had three people apply. One of them, a short email interview. We realized it's a good fit and we set up to work together. And that person was a professional guitar player living in Portland that uh, in his full time is a sound engineer uh, and that's his profession. Now I'm saying that because there is really no way that word, he spent with me 30 minutes in fine tuning that. So it both fits my, when I teach and I go up in my tones and when I have more of a call like that, when I don't try to do that. And since then I've worked with them on several of my location, which I teach from. Now, the point here is that this person uh, has no interest of working for Wharton. I, mean, I think that doesn't mean he wakes up in the morning saying, how can I work with a business school? And we at Wharton cannot hire someone like that. We need someone like that. Maybe even if all faculty are going to use them, they might need them for maybe a day a year. Uh, but this new world of platforms, gig economy, and now add to that chat GPT and its derivative really changed how managers should think about the limitations of what can they do using their current assets and whether they even should have assets to deliver what they need to deliver. So I think it did two things. So this new world, so to speak, it removed many of the boundaries, many of the constraints that we had before. Before we usually tend to rely on what the firm has and what we doesn't have, we do the best we can. The best we can is just not good enough anymore. The challenge, however, is that we might not have these resources as available as we need them when we need them. So we need to be much more nimble in planning for that, realizing that it might be that we need to overpay for these. I don't think we overpaid at all, but pay more than before because now it's in the spot market. We have no relationship uh, that is based on employment. The relationship is a task interesting enough? Is the work challenging enough? Is the work in is, are you willing for to work for this price? So I think managers will have to switch a little bit on how they think about resources. They will have to think about a, how do they leverage the capability to use things, but also the ability to scope things. I, the advantage I had in that story is that I knew what I need. Most of the time, most of us, including myself, don't really know what we need. We sit in a team and we say, okay, that's what we need. Now you might have smaller and smaller teams. And here comes maybe, the, I'll say ChatGPT again, because I find ChatGPT as a good intern. Many times when I have a good question, I ask ChatGPT, and he does a good job like an intern. Sometimes he makes mistakes. Sometimes it actually makes tell me nonsense. But most of the time, it's somewhat helpful in scoping the problem. So long answer, but 
the world is changing very fast and management, unfortunately, is slowly adapting. As off to you for one of the few professors who actually invested in a nice at-home lecture setup. And I was wondering how long it would take for ChatGPT to come up with a conversation. So maybe let's just dive in there. How do you think ChatGPT impacted the students in your class this past semester? Are you incorporating it into your future curriculum? That's a good question. Let me tell you a story on the sad side of ChatGPT, and then we'll talk about the positive side of ChatGPT. I got a submission from a group of students, let's say which degree, which course or anything. A part of their citation was a citation of a paper that I wrote, or allegedly wrote. The reason I'm saying allegedly wrote, because the paper it was on a framework that I used to teach the class with a person that I know in a journal that I'm familiar with. The only issue that the paper was never written. They claimed that the paper, the ChatGPT clearly did the job, and ChatGPT claimed that I wrote this paper in 2019 with a person, again, this person that I know, but I've never written in a journal that I know, but I've never written in. Now, I knew that I didn't try this paper, so I immediately searched the other citation and realized that none of the citation actually uh, was a real paper. Uh, and just to be clear, I didn't disallow people to use ChatGPT in my class. In fact, I told them that I use it continuously. Uh, I'll tell you in a second how I use it. Uh, but ChatGPT is good to create interesting situations because it, first of all, hallucinates. It will stop hallucinating after a while, I'm sure. Uh, but at this point, it hallucinates. At least that's the term we use to describe stuff like this, making up stuff. Uh, and our students have not, by the current generation, the ancient generation, because they got this really amazing tool, but they haven't really developed the capabilities to deal with that. So, we'll, so that was a, a sad incident of ChatGPT, I would say. The more positive one is that I find it really helpful when I need to generate, uh, first of all, to see what will be a, a, what will be the common man answer to a question. I would say ChatGPT does a pretty good job in summarizing what a common man will do. Uh, and that's a good way to have a shortcut. Rather than reading many things, you get a quick summary of where things are. Second thing that ChatGPT is very good at is generating examples. So whenever I need an example, I use that. Here's a situation. Can you come bring up an example in favor or against? So I use it a lot in my writing when I need to say, okay, here's a situation. Can you give me an example? I wrote about the expansion of Blank Street Cafe. And I said, okay, here are five ways in which coffee chains can grow. Can you give me an example for a chain that successfully used that tactic and one that failed using that? Then it came up with good examples. I could verify all of them. And it saved me a lot of time on just searching things because Google would not be able to find that in that way. But I'll say also one more thing, which is in coding, it, it does an amazing job in saving me time in, in writing code. Yeah, I tell him what to do and then he suggests, again, a Python code and I then can test and verify whether this code is a good code. In this case, it's pretty easy to validate. So what I'm saying, I think it's going to save significant amount of time. It's easy for me to save, but I know what I need and I know what code I want to write. So I don't know how teaching that is going to be uh, viable if now people can actually go and search these things. I think I, I don't envy the people that teach a more fundamental core courses. They, I have the luxury of teaching an elective class where I assume that they have this knowledge. And if they don't have that, they can go and ask ChatGPT for this basic knowledge. In my class, they need to use more advanced things. So that's gonna, that's sort of like to some extent that's the short summary of that. I think it's 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 going to be really interesting. And in how do we change the way we test people if we want to make sure they know the fundamental? And it's going to require us to think about what is fundamental. For sure, maybe two part question: How do you think using ChatGPT as a brainstorming tool impacts your thinking going into something new? And second, how 
do you think tools like this impact education in the future? What is the point of education? Is that kind of different K through 12 and college as well? Yes, there's a lot of questions built in. Yeah, let's start, let me start from the last one. Education, I think the main goal of education is teaching you how to learn. Uh, we really, like, if we really assumed that we teach you, knowledge will carry you forever. I think that was very ambitious from the beginning, right? When you study for at most 18 years, uh, if you like maybe 20, if you do a PhD, there is no way that this will carry you to the, your 70s. So I think we teach people for two reasons. We teach them to get maybe a job if it's a college, but then primarily we teach them and the things that are appreciating are things that are critical thinking, being collaborative, uh, knowing how to, to continue to be innovative, creative, uh, software skills like that. And these will not change. In fact, as I demonstrated, I don't think we taught our students to be critical enough because here is a new technology and they're not critical enough of what it generates. So clearly we failed in teaching them one of the most important skills. Uh, I think also even technical skills. Uh, the reason I know what to ask is that I know how to code. So I know how to break it down. And I coded enough hours to know how I want it to look like. And so I also get that. Now, the difficulty, what I think we'll have to change is how we test people. Because in the past, I could actually teach you how to code by asking you to code something and then ask you to write it into a piece of paper or into a computer, let's say, afterwards. And that will be the test. Now we cannot rely on it because you can go and ask ChatGPT and it will do a pretty good job. Now, of course, you can actually say you're not allowed to, but now you're fighting against something that I think is just going to be very hard. So I think we're going to see more paper and pencil tests, and we're going to see more oral tests. You can submit whatever you want, but you need to come and defend it. And a little bit like the old way in the medieval days, if you will. So I think the type of skills are not going to change. The weight is going to change. And the way we test them is definitely going to change. I like that. Do you think you're going to incorporate that into the way you test your students in class? Most likely. It's not very scalable. I teach about scaling. So <laughs> that's going to be an interesting discussion. But yeah, this year it was too late to do that. I think ChatGPT joined very late. Uh, but I definitely think about next year maybe doing exactly that for the project. You can submit your project, but then you'll need to become in multiple teams and defend them. And my exams are anyway take-home exams. So I assume that you're allowed to use whatever tools you have actually generate. You're not allowed to use humans, but, but everything beyond that you're allowed to use. <laughs> cool. Interesting. Do you see certain trends in students from when you first started as director to now? What do you think the future is? I think that it's a too short of a timeline for really things to change. I don't, I don't think that things have really changed. The topics changed a little bit. One year, but interested in the crypto, the next year, no one. One year, people are interested in social, the year of that, no one. I think so. I think the topics, but beyond that, I don't see a significant change in how people attitude towards education, attitude toward technology. Uh, overall, I think these work stayed the same around the, the years I'm here. Fair enough. And it is a self-selected group of students anyway, right? In the program. Right. So maybe that plays into it. How did you find your interest in scaling? Have you continued to be passionate about one topic? I think a lot of listeners are in the 20s where we realize it's actually hard to figure out what we like to do. Uh, we like it for a couple of years, maybe, and then we're on to the next. How do you think you found that as a lifelong passion for yourself? I'm not sure if that's a lifelong passion yet. I've been doing that maybe for eight years now. Fair. So if I think about what my station was on competition in services, so I was I mentioned game theory and queuing theory, and 
Later on, I moved to do other things that are even the work on the gig economy. I love that utilizes operational aspects, but embedded within an economic environment. Uh, so most of my work is a interdisciplinary nature and has two layers to it. It has usually a very executional layer, but one that is more embedded within, let's say, a business managerial question that is either within some economic system or financial system. And that's what I think fascinates me with a, now, when you say scaling may sound as if it's a one topic, it's actually probably, I would say 15 different topics that embedded within it. So, you know, the question of how do you know what you're measuring? How do you know that you actually have the right level of processes? How do you know that you have the right people in place? And what I really enjoy over the last two years, I've been writing my newsletter, right? A, every week, every Monday. And that's one of my a, most enjoyable activities. And I didn't miss a single week for the last two and a half years. One thing that I enjoy doing by doing that is that it really, I view it as sort of like a, some people call it the flywheel, some people call it a content triangle. A, I, many times I tell students something in class and then I say to myself, maybe I said with too much of a conviction, let me go and write about that to actually generate that conviction. Then I write about that. Now I have what I wrote getting to the next class because now I've, thought about it much, much deeper than before. Uh, now, usually when I have a conversation with a firm and I have almost every week conversation at least with two or three firms, uh, I try to test what I just said. Is it like relevant? Is that correct? Is that, and so I keep on refining my model and keep on refining what I think about current events, current technologies, current ideas, uh, and also utilize that with firms that are on the cutting edge, at least on the technology they use, even if not on the problem, they, on, on, on the issue that I think about. So they might be a, doing something really interesting, but they're still trying to figure out how to do that in terms of structure or processes or metrics or anything like that. So overall, to me at least, my main assumption almost in everything that I do is that if you go deep enough, you'll find continuously more and more interesting things. A, so over time, I switched different directions, I switched research topics, but all of them stayed within the same vicinity and of these problems that involve multiple angles and involve the ability to actually really dig deep and, and understand what really drives something. I say usually you understand your paper only once you write the next paper that builds on that. And then, so that's true also for scaling, right? I, mean, I think many times it's like a cycle. The more you think about something, you raise more questions. Now you go and start answering them. Uh, and then, so that's what I'm in academia, that's what they like to do. Amazing. What are the sorts of conversations and challenges firms bring to you? Do you see differences before COVID, during, and now a bit after? To be honest, COVID temporarily changed things, but not really uh, fundamentally. What I mean by that is that during COVID, every supply chain had shortages. Now every supply chain has too much inventory. Uh, but these were two just symptoms of other more fundamental issues. So I don't think COVID really uh, changed. If I look at the type of firms that I look at that, that are primarily scaling and trying to grow, uh, I don't see fundamentally different problems now than what I had two years before COVID. Fair enough. So what are the sorts of conversations that you've had recently with various firms? I would say several conversations that are, that are always coming up, which is if we're trying to expand, uh, what are the things we should do? What are the things we should postpone? This is true for questions on what type of product should we do? What type of services we should do? Or also what type of processes we should do now and what we should postpone. Uh, I think firms that I work with are usually 
try to go really fast while also not go overboard with the resources they utilize. Most of them are limited in resources. They have more ideas than resources that they can use. Usually they come to me not with the question of what do you think we should do? Usually they come to me and say, what do you think you should do? And how should we think about that? So they come to me usually with questions on what is a good framework that can help them challenge the way they think about the way they think about that. And that's what I enjoy about that. It helps me on one side uh, sharpen these frameworks, but also apply them to a real case. There is a real question here. We, should we pick city A or city B? Should we actually wait a little bit or should we standardize now, implement these systems now? Because if we don't do it now, it will be too late. Uh, and then so th these are the type of problems. Sometimes it gets really to questions that are more personal. Do you think this is the right person to keep for this type of growth? And just recently a conversation with someone said, do you think I am the right person to continue in growth? Uh, in the case of that question, I thought it yes, but it's a tough question. I'm not sure that I'm in a position to tell someone that they're not in the position <laughs> to continue and manage the firm as they grow. Uh, but that person was a very, very honest person. I think you basically said, I, I brought up the business here. I'm not sure I'm the right person to move with it next. Uh, I see many of the issues start to break. Is that now or shall I wait a little bit before I do that? Or shall I sell it? Maybe on that point, what do you think folks early in their career should focus on building? Do you think there are certain things that's easier to learn and experience while we're young versus later on in our careers? No, that goes back a little bit to your question before on how do you become passionate for something? I don't think I know the answer for any of these questions. I think to me, at least, uh, the main thing to think about is that unless you do something, you don't really know if you're going to enjoy it or not. Something a priori you're going to enjoy, and that's fair. But I would say if you really think that you're going to enjoy something or you there is some likelihood you're going to enjoy it or learn from that, I would say absolutely you should do it. I don't like to quote Steve Jobs, but if I have to, I'll say that his point is that you cannot connect the dot looking forward. You have to connect it. So like you you can, you can have to do things and then say, oh, what do I enjoy doing? What are the things that I should do more of? If you want to be a builder, you should build, not learn how to build. You learn how to build by building and not by learning how to build. Uh, if you want to manage people, get to a position that you can actually manage people. I think it's important to, to first of all, do things before you manage people. But if what you want to do is manage people, go and manage people. Totally. Fair enough. I don't think anyone necessarily has a right answer to these. Oh, it's all good. Are there certain people you prefer quoting or finding inspiration from? No, not so much. I, I, I many times refer in when I teach to uh, several books that I go often back to uh, the High Output Management by Andy Grove, uh, The Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, A Goal by Eli Godrat. These are books that I like on the management side, books that like go back to on the more uh, economic Questions that I, I many times go back to the culture of growth by Joel Mokir and probably uh, the, the two philosophers that, that influenced him more than anyone else would be, but that would be very, very presumptuous. What I'm going to say now and pretentious at the same time, the last statement really was the discussion that we had earlier on both chat GPT and in fact, on, on how do you know that something like, why am I continuous to, to continue to go into a, into scaling is that the statement by Wittgenstein that, that says that understanding is a mental is not a mental state. Uh, it's not a cognitive idea. Understanding is a, there is no moment where you say, okay, now I understand. Understanding is actually, it's a process. It's a process by which you go deeper and deeper into something and you actually have to do something to really know if you understand it. Uh, and so this is something that I strongly believe in. And I, I quote it when I 
a recently before my a, exam and I told students the exam require you to do things, not just to actually go and answer a question about them. I want you to be able to know that you do and that to do that, that you could do. And so that's just fun. I like it. You mentioned the weekly newsletters is one of your most enjoyable activities. What else do you enjoy nowadays? Did you get to enjoy the West Coast? No, this past season. Yeah, I, I like running, so I run. I, I try to run a, every other day, so I enjoy doing that. That's my a, mental time off, if you will, a, and I enjoy skiing. I'm not a good skier, so I enjoy doing that, but even though I don't do it well. And reading. A, I make sure to continuously a, learn, so I always try to take at least one course, primarily in philosophy, as my last few examples indicated. A, and I do primarily at Oxford, where they have good online courses even for people that are on the other side of the pond. Ha, ah, incredible. Are you up for a quick lightning round? Let's see. <laughs> what is one thing you wish everyone knew? That's not lightning. That's a very heavy question. <laughs> you, need... you can take all the time you need. <laughs> wish everybody knew uh, that the only thing you're guaranteed is the pursuit of happiness, not happiness itself. What are three things that you can't live without besides the necessities? iPhone, Apple Watch, and my laptop. Are you an investor in Apple? <laughs> no. I'm sure the answer is yes, because most of my money is in index funds. I'm sure yep. 60% of that index fund is probably Apple, but yes. But no, <laughs> other than it's a separate stock. Which must be good for you then this week. <laughs> yes. Uh, any content recommendations of any form? I know you already threw out a few before. I like listening, so maybe I'll, I'll mention a podcast. I'm listening now to the final season of Revolutions. It's a podcast on revolution, starting with the British Revolution. I'm now in the final season, which is the Russian Revolution. I'm in, I think, episode like 80 of that uh, podcast, uh, of the 10th season. It's an amazing podcast if you care about history through the lens of revolutions. Wow, incredible. When do you find the right time to listen to podcasts? When's your favorite time of the day to do that? So I, when I drive and when I run. Nice, nice. So it's not really mental break during your run. No. <laughs> cool. Anything else you want to share with the world for today? The world, oh, like 30 listener. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for inviting me. No, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. I, there's a non-official who's the most established in age award going out. And some of my previous coworkers were battling about that. So you might be winning it now, but unsure. <laughs> no, I appreciate you sharing. <laughs> no, thanks. Thanks so much. So you're in Sao Paulo. Yeah, I'm in Sao Paulo, been here for about two and a half months, have three and a half to go. So it's been an amazing time. Like, I think the culture, people, food here have been incredible. Nice. Very nice. Have, oh, you've never been? Okay. Because I was going to say there was a Wharton event. That's where I met Enzo a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Dean James came and spoke, so that was interesting. But next year, there's some big Wharton event happening here. I believe it's the Wharton Global Forum. I think it's that then. Yeah. yeah have you nice. been to that event before? I've been to that when it was in London. I was supposed to be this okay. year in uh, supposed to be this year in Singapore. I couldn't go because of some teaching, uh, but we'll see. It's nice usually. That's cool. What is it about beyond connecting alumni? It's faculty are coming. I did, for example, a panel with the the, the founder of Deliveroo, the founder of uh, City Mapper, uh, and then I spoke on my own research. So each faculty there is doing a panel and a talk. And then there are also speakers from the country and speakers from the region and all that. So it's actually packed two days, two packed days of like content. Wow. Cool. 
yeah, very nicely set up, even just this two, three hour event, like one of the bougiest places in the city and a very fancy hotel. So Warren always choosing the right place. <laughs> cool. Thank you again, Ged, for all your time. You're welcome. Yeah, enjoy your weekend. Bye. Yeah, dude. And that's a wrap for now. God, everyone. See you on the next episode of Let the Dogs Out, a podcast where I chat life with cool people doing awesome things.